every time, every time there's always a delay. It's hilarious. I don't know why I keep finding that funny, but I do. <laughs> You've got to find your humor somewhere. Our 2.1 listeners can leave reviews about it. Yeah, that's right. They can leave reviews. <clears throat> That'd be the first review of anything we've got so far, that's for sure. Um, I'm not bitter. So, uh, I'm Ryan. I'm Harland. We are the Doddlers. And I feel like you want me to say so. Oh, yeah. And this, <laughs> this is the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast. favorite bar stops serving your favorite beer, you need consolation. Definitely need consolation. Um, boop, boop, boop. Joe Rogan. That's That used to be the theme song. But all of a sudden, today <laughs> there was a, like a different, like almost a real one. Almost. Uh... <laughs> But uh, now, now we have some kind of thing. Uh, today is another one of those episodes where I am like, "Don't fuck up, Ryan." So it'll be like the climate one that we did. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm super excited, and uh, but I'm kind of, I guess I'm ready. I don't know. Are um, you ready? But. I'm ready. It's another episode where, you know, it's like scary stuff from science or whatever. Do we we all need to be terrified and <laughs> dismayed and hysterical about something? Sort of. Thanks, science. At the end, we might be a little haunted. But I don't know if in the end we'll be terrified. Uh, hopefully not because of the treatment that we give it. But nonetheless, I'll get to the point. And this time we're going to talk about mass extinction. And, uh, you know, it seems like it's sort of a relevant topic, but it's also one that I... I don't know if I enjoy mass extinction. <laughs> I enjoy a good death, good amount of mega death. Um, 
but anyway, uh, it is, it's interesting. And it's another one of those, I guess I'll say it's another one of those top, uh, scientific, um, endeavors or whatever that highlights some interesting science and a scientific community and sort of how we've come to appreciate the phrase mass extinction. Uh, yeah. Okay. So what is a mass extinction? Like, okay, well, what is an extinction? That means, like, a species is no more. Is that right? What is it? Extinction. Yeah. Extinction is, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be just at the species, uh, the level at which we categorize, you know, something into a species lineage, but it could be any kind of, it could be on up through the taxonomy or the tax taxonomic classification scheme that Linnaeus, I don't know, what was his first name? I can't remember. Anyway. Let's say Carl. Yeah, good one. Um, he looks like a Carl. No. Um, that Linnaeus came up with, which was the, you know, you got species, and above that you got genus, and above that you got family and order and class and all that crap. Um, I think if you want to know the... Is it, is it called an anagram or something? Anyway, it's kings play chess on fine green sand, which is kingdom, phylum, class, order, uh, family, genera, species. Anyway, nice. Remember mnemonic, that. I think. Right? Is it a mnemonic? That's what it's called. Uh, I, again, okay. I'm so in don't fuck up Ryan mode that I'm just like. So then you're saying an extinction can apply to any of those. Doesn't have to just. I think we species. tend to, yeah. But yeah, we'll we can apply them to that, I guess. Mm, okay. So a mass extinction then would be when a whole bunch go out at once, or yeah. And if you if you want to just talk about it at the species level, um, you then just say yeah. Uh, I think I don't know about the duration of time, but over which a lot of species go extinct. But I. I think the cutoff point is about 50% of, you know, the existing faunas and floras go extinct. Um, anything above that, that becomes, that's considered a mass extinction. And typically it's over an extraordinarily short period of time. You uh, mean 50% speaking. of all species on Earth? Yeah, I think about that. That's I do That sounds like a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. And it's it's tough because they break it up a lot. These paleontologists, they you know they'll they'll be like, well, there's seventy nine percent of this and fourteen percent of that, and you know they'll they break it down. And I'm like, God damn it, just give me the big number. Mm. Um, and honestly, sometimes it's hard to come up with. Or they'll be like, well, marine bivalves is what we're talking about right now. And so, but I think that generally the cutoff is fifty percent, but um. It, it, usually, if you go around looking for a definition of mass extinction, they just say a lot over a short period of time, you know, something along those lines. Very qualitative. But I'm pretty sure there's a quantitative approach to that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but anyway, so that's the topic. And that's, I think, basically a rough definition of what a mass extinction is. And it's just a lot of, a lot of organisms, you could just say. A lot of organisms are gone, you know. And so... Typically, how it's viewed is um, 
you know, you can think of um, like a cake, a layer cake. Imagine a, you know, cake and frosting layered up on top of each other in a slice. And, you know, you've got each layer is some different kind of sediment that's been laid down. And then they connect with each other. Like one gets laid down, then another gets laid down and sort of in discrete beds, if you will. And so if you were to get, if, if you were to look, be looking at like uh, the, the, the lower level of cake and you get up to the frosting and you get all those, you see a lot of different fossils, you know, different kinds of organisms, looking organisms. And then after that, that, that frosting, nothing, you know, or very few. And it's like that pretty much everywhere you go um, at that kind of horizon. If you can, if you were able to, um, you know, um, put a lateral correlation across um that's kind of what people tend to go huh about or paleontologists in particular um because you know you're expecting it to continue and all of a sudden it's it's no longer there um, right so that would draw your attention it draws your attention it's one of these patterns there's another pattern however that is also kind of a i think a big deal and I think to an extent, um, it's also been a, a kind of a, a motivating factor in not just, you know, studying, say, you know, this extinction stuff we're talking about today, but just evolution in general, you know, the evolution of organisms in particular. And it is essentially, the pattern is this, that based on, you remember that cake the layer cake i talked about a second ago well there's some basic principles in geology that suggest you know uh you know to the geologist or the paleontologist you know how to view what they're looking at you know and essentially you know one of these principles essentially states that you've got your older sediments you know the events if you will um, in the sequence are going to be at the bottom and the younger ones are going to be at the top. Well, if you go up to all these various different kinds of outcrops and you pre create like a composite, if you will, because you've maybe got marker beds that you can identify across different places in space, you know, and you can say, okay, well, this is the same, roughly the same event line as, you know, over here. And so you can kind of put all these different stratigraphic sections together. How, a nice composite. How do you do that? Like if there's a volcanic eruption or something that leaves a evenly dispersed but unusual is that the kind of mark you mean? Yeah, for sure. There could be something like that or there could be an erosion event that clearly looks like, you know, some bed was just like eroded and, you know, it's, you know, say it's an extensive laterally extensive sand that was deposited in the ocean or something like that. And then there's some big erosion and you can go around and see all the, you know, the same horizon on this same bed. And it's a way to kind of get a, a sense for, and it's a lot of work, but it's a way to try and get things lined up. A because, calibration you know. mechanism. Sure. Yeah. But the th main thing I'm trying to get at here is that the younger rocks are at the top. The older rocks are at the bottom. And that when you got this composite and you're looking around and you're you're doing your science and you're going around and collecting your data, one of the things that people in the 19th century 
but as well as you know in the you know the 18th century i think but definitely in the 19th century there was this idea that hey you know the younger rocks have fossils that look similar in appearance to the present day faunas and floras you know why is that you know it was kind of one of these patterns and i kind of i kind of want to call it like the benjamin button pattern or something of like it's you know starts out old and it gets younger as you go up sequence or whatever as you go through the movie it gets younger you know and so that was kind of a big part of um, another motivating factor for people to want to talk about well you know hey you know how come things look younger and um there's two kind of frameworks that people i think operated out of to try and help explain these kinds of things and and it's or this particular pattern um and one of them and it be, it's a these are these are frameworks that are prominent later especially but one of them is uh catastrophism and the other one is uniformitarianism um so quickly definitions uh like catastrophism could be you could say uh is the large and short-lived events uh shape the history and patterns of systems and i'm being very general there and then in uniformitarianism could be like small steady processes uh that shape the history and pattern of systems and one of the bumper stickers for uniformitarianism is the present is the key to the past um do you, i'm going to stop for a second direct, and let you jump in if you want. is this directly related or just coincidentally isomorphic to a sort of Gould Dawkins argument in the evolution of a given lineage that you have your punctuated equilibrium versus gradualism that we talked about on a previous episode. For sure. Yeah, no. And, um, this definitely plays a part, uh, there, I mean, there, there are different perspectives play a part, I think for sure in this you know in a grand story of of these two kind of conceptual frameworks um but i think the uniformitarianism and the catastrophism play an even kind of bigger role when it comes to say someone like darwin and his he was the kind of the real push for you know this kind of uh you know the debate and he had his motivations for why he he ended up on one side or the other um well, but in general okay i probably don't appreciate yet what those two things mean but these are different tacks to explain mass extinction right is the point why they have come no. to the party no. i think Wait, what are, are these doing these are trying to explain that sort of Benjamin Button pattern, that younger rocks have fossils similar in appearance to the present-day faunas and floras, but older rocks don't. And so the question is, well, why is that? Why, you know, are they changing? Is there something going on? And so um, there were, back in, say, the 19th century, what you know, people who would maybe consider themselves transmutationists and others who wouldn't. And they might have their own reasons for why they would think that. Uh, some of them very well, most of the time, are likely to be kind of religious. Um, because 
you know, that they didn't believe that anything could change, that, um, you know, things weren't uh, immutable or whatever. Okay, sure. I um, was just, I was being a presentist. And I, when you described that question, I was like, well, duh, because they evolved. But you're saying that this was <laughs> this w- an important question, perhaps in a population that didn't as widely accept and understand biological evolution. So then, like, it was two people in the past that that was puzzling. Yeah, exactly. And... um so one of these people was um, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, and he, of course, is a sort of controversial figure, I guess you could say, even to this day, to an extent, or maybe he just gets dragged into uh, present-day fights between people about specific aspects of evolution. But nonetheless, his whole uh, his thoughts on evolution were that it was, you know, organisms you know, inherited something and that inheritance, you know, was, you know, the, the thing that allowed them to continue to try and, um, you know, do better in the environment or what have you. And that he thought that definitely there was a, there was a transfer from parent to offspring of something that allowed them to continue to evolve and whatnot. It wasn't quite yet Darwinian evolution but it it was his own you know it was his own thing and i don't want to get bogged down in that because this is about mass extinctions mm-hmm. um <clears throat> and his contemporary in and so french guy his other french guy contemporary or a french guy who was a contemporary of his was uh georges cuvier and he um was kind of the big catastrophist or you know i guess that's how you say it uh catastrophist um, and his ex- explanation of say that pattern was, well, the, you know, there were these major catastrophes cause he was the one looking at all these rocks and, uh, the, the fossils and the formations and, you know, all, you know, all these sediments and these, you know, stratigraphic sections and seeing that there would be just a, you know, a stoppage in the diversity, uh, you know, at a certain point in these, some of these sections. And so in his view, in his you know, well, these were natural theologians, so they weren't even natural philosophers, I think, to an extent. Uh, but he was he was a natural theologian. And, you know, and he thought it was catastrophes. These just major th- big things came through and just killed off all these organisms. But that more or less we were just kind of, in, in some ways, like, you know, we'd be kind of like losing, in a way, diversity. But we've, you know... Um, we've been just these catastrophes have been removing what what seems archaic to us now but these are just events and more or less you know in the history of earth and uh so he was not a transmutationist he didn't think that there was something passed on from parent to uh, you know offspring every generation whatever that would be for each organism so there are these kind of uh different viewpoints going on there was another guy named Jean Baptiste Broki he was also kind of somewhere in between Lamarck and and Cuvier, um, and he actually has the it's Brokey's analogy, and he's one of those people who thought um, uh, that you know a species lineage, for instance, or some kind of taxon you see in the fossil record, you know it it it's like an organism in that is an it's like an individual that's born, lives, and dies. You know, so he he also is uh, 
thinking about extinction in a way and kind of equating it to uh, an individual's death, an individual organism's death or something. Um, but the big uniformitarianist then, as opposed to uh, Cuvier, was this guy Charles Lyell, who was a geologist, and he was, you know, a bigwig, and he did all, you know, he was, you know, another one of those bigwigs. I think he was younger than those, than Lamarck and Cuvier. I think he's more of a contemporary of Darwin. And he was quite influential on Darwin. And so this whole, you know, it's just a steady, um, you know, earth processes at, you know, at the surface, you know, like the, the waves on the ocean, you know, they come in with the tides and, you know, every, you know, two times a day, they lap at the cliffs, you know, the bottom of the cliff and they just steadily knock at it, you know, and then eventually the cliff fails and it falls and they just keep knocking at the blocks and they keep, they make the blocks smaller and everything just gets smaller and smaller and it just breaks it into the sand and all, you know what I mean? So like there's, there is, you know, that's sort of the, the idea of uniformitarianism that everything's just steady and it's just being pounded into nothing, you know, it's almost sort of like a, you know, it's just an entropy style of uh, thinking about what's going on. Uh, and I'll let you jump in if you'd like. It sounds like if you have any both camps at least the way it's comes down to us in the canonized version who knows how accurate and specific it is but that both of these people were heavily perhaps unduly influenced by the way they go about studying things the guy who looks at a bunch of cliffs being eroded by waves ends up being a proponent of a uniformitarian theory uh, to the extent Mm -hmm. that matters. That's just an interesting thing to me that what you do all day can have an influence on what theory you find preferable. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of... um, There is some extent of a sort of almost theory ladenness in the way that people would uh, uh, be proponents of one kind of framework or another. But as far as the history of the science goes, I think those are the two big frameworks that kind of butted heads against one another. There are some other, like, there was some quackery out there at the same time, but these ones seem to last the longest, and it might be based on the seriousness of their practitioners with respect to, <clears throat> you know, how they went about their business and trying not to be, at least working as hard as they can to not be as biased as possible, even though we we're just talking about them being ultimately biased by their by their frameworks. Um, apparently, Cuvier never, like, he only he was just like a just the facts, you know, kind of guy, you know, like he's just like just had the data and he just talked about the data. And maybe if there were some aspects that could be attributed to, you know, the extinctions or whatever, you know. And so ultimately he was more convinced about like, you know, must have been big events that took out all these organisms. And he'd never mentioned God. He never mentioned like all these you know, religious things, even though I, I think he was quite religious. So, you know what I mean? It's like, but other people would give in to those urges and be like, and then God came, you know, mm-hmm. and they had all these crazy other, like diastrophism is another thing that was out there at the time or whatever. And so I think there's, that's part of it. And then of course the, the respect that these people had 
in their scientific communities, number one. Number two, also the respect they had for each other. So there's all these, like, eulogies they gave each other, you know, like, all this stuff. Um, so, how, anyway. How does yeah. either one of those explain the question posed at the beginning as to why the fossils amongst the young rocks more closely approximate the current biosphere? If They both sound as though they're pruning mechanisms... Like, these are explanations as to why certain things are no longer seen. But neither one, at least as I heard it, explains the presence of anything new. Or how do they deal with that? Or what's the connection? Um, I don't know, you know, the, the major connection. All I can really say is, in part, as far as catastrophism is concerned, is that for Cuvier, it was a removal process, a pruning like you were talking about, and that what you get to see is those, you know, that were, uh, you know, that are around today for, you know, whatever reason lived and outlasted. Yeah. And I don't know how um, much we're supposed, I'm supposed to think of these people as biblical, but were they the sort that thought, well, God created 10,000 species? And the only reason that things look different now than they look in the old rocks is that now there's only 5,000 species because the other ones died. So that they were happy to say that it's only, the only distinction is one of absence. Yeah, and I think that was primarily Cuvier's move, mm. I believe. I, you know... All it is is there's a pattern and there's some frameworks that I think people tried to use to explain that pattern. However, uniformitarianism doesn't really get into, um, in my opinion, an explanation in the same way. I think a lot of it tends to just be theoretical. And um, ultimately, Darwin, you know, D-Dog, his... He has a dilemma uh, because he writes this big book on, you know, natural selection. And, uh, you know, he has, you know, natural selection and principles of divergence and the idea that, you know, there's a directionality that occurs in the, the evolution of, um, you know, these organisms. And so, uh, you know, those that are not uh, able to deal with the conditions of life or however he wants to talk about it um, are just, you know, they die, you know? And so he says, and I'm going to, I'm going to quote here. Um, he says, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Cause that's his dilemma is that there's, we're looking for those intermediate links because he's saying it's going, you know, evolution to the right, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Since geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. So I think that was his approach was, oh yeah, there's that pattern, but, you know, we can't, 
explain it. I mean, I've got a good theory, but the record itself is is you know that's I can come up with a good theory, but the record is crap, and so you'll never see what it is I'm telling you ought to be there because it's just there's so much uh, erosion and uh, and a, a lot of these uh, you know he goes on and on and on, but you know some of the things are that you know the, you got fossils that are just buried and we'll never you know see them or we've got some <clears throat> because of erosion and uplift and all that we just they just get torn apart i know from my own experience that a lot of fossils when they are exhumed when you actually like see them at the surface i think because of all that pressure that they're under when they're finally no longer under that pressure many of them it seems like they just sort of crumble and just blow away in the wind practically so it's you know they're super easily destroyed and that's why if you're going to go, you know, and, you know, professionally, uh, you know, uh, take out a fossil from the ground, say, you know, you found some, you know, maybe somewhat intact bones of a dinosaur or something like that. You got to like slather a shit ton of glue on the thing. And then from there, you start putting all, all this wet toilet paper. And then you start putting this like, you know, the, the, the stuff you put on a broken arm, the, again, I can't think, but um plaster no plaster but i I, yeah something just the basic plaster stuff with the water and you got to kind of dip it in and put it on and put a plaster jacket on um so you know it's you know there's that's i think generally the main thrust of darwin is it's just imperfect it's extremely imperfect and um and besides anyway he he talks about, you know, extinction, uh, you know, being just a matter of, you know, well, the conditions of life change. And so those who are better suited to it because of variation will pass on their better suitedness, their fitness to their offspring. And the ones who aren't, they won't be able to pass it on. Um, and so will again, evolution to the right. Um, uh, yeah. And then the, the other ones, it's like exit stage left. Uh, so yeah, that that's kind of the that's sort of a big motivating factor for a lot of the rest of this because he was quite, you know, adamant and I think relatively successful in this one, you know, couple sections of his book where he talks about the imperfection of the fossil record and then and oh, the rock record and then talks about the imperfections of the fossil record. Um and everybody's kind of just like, "Okay, you know, and then, you know, other stuff happens later, but I reckon this could be an entire episode, and I so we don't want to get into a huge debate about it, but because I feel that this could be pretty contentious. But you, I think you used the phrase that Darwin thought that there was a directionality to evolution, and that and that that you have then since been characterizing as to the rightness, whatever that means. <laughs> so, uh, but what did what? Can you say briefly what you mean by Darwin thinking there was a direction to evolution? Well, I mean, really, I think it mostly is that there is, um, you know, a, you know, that the conditions of life, as he called them, which I guess you could just say environmental, the physical environment and other conditions would change over time. And that those, you know, the breadth of variation that, a particular lineage possesses those that match that shift would be better suited to 
live there. And um, what he is suggesting is that um, they would improve on, you know, their their ability to, you know, exist within, uh, you know, that particular, con you know, environment until the environment changed. And then they would have to shift along with that as well. And so they diverge. And I'm just thinking of the, you know, his little tree, you know, the tree of life where the branches go, you know. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always just thinking, you know, if you've got, you know, the idea that you form like a Y or, you know, you, you've got these Ys with the branches off of it. And so I just think I was just joking to the right, but could be the left or whatever, but that it's kind of you're moving away your character, you know, the the. The character, the characters, and the traits of the organisms are evolving away from where they were, because those conditions aren't any good. There isn't okay. to say that the conditions couldn't return or anything like. We that. assume changing conditions, and then the claim would be that the direction is toward better fit. So it's not necessarily even. It's not unidirectional that there's some end that we're attempting to reach. But it's a sort of wandering random walk or whatever. Whatever the environment does, then we should see movement in the lineages to match. Right. And, and also then he's saying should... that the fossil record and the rock record don't show that. And that's, is that the dilemma? That we have a yeah. theory that we consider good for various reasons. And then we have an evidentiary basis. There's some relationship between the two, but the <laughs> evidence, the facts, fall short. They have gaps. They have missing links, if we can say that. Loaded phrase. <laughs> and then the theorist has the dilemma of trying to decide, well, do I modify and or abandon the theory, or do I find a flaw in the evidence base? Is that the what you call Darwin's dilemma and he and you're saying he went towards criticizing the evidence. Yeah, right. Yes, he he criticizes the evidence. Mm -hmm. So he says you can't go you can't turn to that. That's the only thing that could hurt me, but you can't turn to it. So it's kind of one of those kind of moves. Um yeah. And uh so I think that was the the main you know uh issue that he faced at least at that time in the book um and you know being you know these these people were you know back then there weren't tons and tons of specialists so these all these people were quite well acquainted with the living world and the you know the fossil world and you know and apparently he was a really good geologist as well as a good ecologist so you know it's it's quite interesting to you know, you you naturally get a synthesis out of out of those uh, those kinds of people like Darwin back in the day. Because yeah, in the good old days when you could be an expert in more than one field. Correct. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, and when you could just sit there and not. I mean, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of being a little. I'm being a little chippy here, but like when you can just sit there and think about your stuff and work on your little projects all day and not even really have to raise your children. I mean, anyway. That was a jab. I'm sorry. But I don't I don't envision him like changing the nappies all day, you know, just being like, God, there's so many kids we've had, you know. Yeah, I'll never get my work done. He's got cousins to do that shit. Ouch. <laughs> um 
so yeah so he has you know all these issues and it you know it, it let's just say at the very least it leaves a mark and one of the things um you know one of the people that kind of responded in a way to to Darwin who was just like to hell with that uh, because apparently a, a number of paleontologists at the time were like, yeah, the record sucks or whatever. He's got us. But it was he's right. Yeah, he's, exactly. There was this guy named John Phillips and he was a paleontologist or someone who really focused. I mean, we just got done talking about how they were all like multi experts or whatever. And I'm like, and he was just a paleontologist. I don't, I don't know if he was just a paleontologist, but he certainly was also a person who dabbled quite extensively in paleontology. And um, he came up with a plan to say, not that like Darwin was wrong or anything about natural selection or anything like that, but to say, hey, man, you know, the paleontological record, it's not perfect, but it's not that bad, you know? And so this is kind of a key move in this whole episode, I or, you know, um, it's a key move for this whole episode. And he, so he decided to compile, you know, this is 1860. So Origin of Species was put out in 1859. And this guy, John Phillips, you know, was so put out by Darwin, his couple of chapters, poo-pooing the fossil record that he, in by, 19, by 1860, had published his own little book or treatise or whatever, and I think it was called Life on Earth, Its Origin and Succession. And he, you know, compiled all these, the fossil data, if you will, and plotted this big plot of, you know, the data. And he was just like, see how useful this shit is? You know, like we can show you what, you know, essentially he put in picture form the sort of Benjamin Button uh, pattern, if you will, you know by showing this curve of increases in fossils and de you know in fossils it de increases and decreases in diversity over time and so um old school data visualization definitely. he was ahead of the yeah exactly yes so he um kind of is sort of the person to create i think if not the first certainly one of the absolute first diversity curves that becomes kind of an important thing later in the sort of mid to late, really more late-ish uh, 20th century in, in paleontology. And I think it's just worth mentioning that there was somebody out there who was like, hey, you know, but it was also important. Um, but this stuff doesn't really get, as far as I can tell, um, and I'm sure there are historians who could tell me no, but it doesn't really start to get picked up until this guy, Norman Newell, uh, who is a you know, 20th century paleontologist, you could say. He worked at the American Museum of Natural History. And he he decided that, um, you know, there was certainly, after the, and I'll talk about this really quick, but like after the whole um, uh, evolutionary synthesis, and that was the sort of this modern synthesis where all these people came together, this, you know, um, this guy Dubjansky and this other guy Mare and uh, this paleontologist Gigi Simpson, they all kind of wrote their own little 
uh, books at the at the relatively at similar time, and it kind of converged where they all kind of came together and came up with a plan for hey, this is how we think evolution works, and we've got now genetics, and we've got natural selection, and we've got our ideas about you know geography as well as you know so they're just scaling it all throughout like from the molecular level on up to the macroevolutionary level fossils and stuff like that um and i think this norman newell guy was kind of trying to push for a few other things that uh maybe not as included and that many paleontologists at the time this is probably the 1940s and 50s um just kind of weren't into they just they they were like yeah we're just gonna be darwinists and we're just gonna do the darwin thing and we're not gonna bother with you know anything else um so anyway this guy norman newell he kind of gets diversity studies of diversity and extinction back up and running and wanting to kind of infuse um you know uh uh you know some evolution into the actual paleontological research um that's you know going on uh <clears throat> you know in in the American Museum of Natural History uh Stephen Jay Gould who was his student um he talks about how you know paleontologists don't want to be the handmaiden of you know geologists anymore you know we don't want to just help you figure out the time you know the times because the there was this you know this guy Cuvier who I mentioned earlier he was one of those people who came up with this idea called biostratigraphy, where they use the fossils to try and, you know, get a sense for where they are in the in in the sequence of deposits, and you know, obviously, from there in time, kind of thing. Um, and so Newell is the guy who kind of started to look at, you know, collecting some of the data as well, and. He came up with, I think it's he who came up with it, but it's uh, kind of this idea of called the Big Five, and sort of the Big Five mass extinctions. And, um, you know, there's this uh, Ordovician mass extinction. There's a, you know, I think Devonian one, uh, and these these are all the, the Ordovicians probably four hundred some odd million years ago. Devonian is three hundred or so, and then. 250 million years ago, there's the biggest one of all, the Permian, uh, Permo-Triassic mass extinction. And then there's a couple others. Is that one the famous uh, dinosaur asteroid one? Nope. That one oh. is just the famous, like, nearly everybody died one. Um, and then there's uh, the fourth one after that is one in the Triassic. And uh, that one affected... Uh, not that one wasn't nearly as big as some of these other ones, but that one's pretty big. And then, of course, um, the KT mass extinction or N Cretaceous mass extinction, and that one is uh, the one when the dinosaurs died. Ah, okay. So one thing I noticed about those five is that I'm under the impression that the Earth is more like four billion, something like that. Right? Mm -hmm. And you said the oldest one of those is four hundred million. When do we yeah. think there was "quote unquote" life around? Right. Exactly. So this and is is there a big gap between when there was some life and when there was the first mass extinction? And if so, is that just because that's as far back as we have been able to go with our evidence, or 
did we do really well for a long time before we had our first one? Uh, I don't know uh, if we did really well before we had our first one. I'm guessing that mass extinctions have occurred prior to that. Um, I don't know if this is as much an ontological statement as it is an epistemological one. That this is the big five we've got. You know, this is these are the this is you know based this is the empirical big five or what have you. Mm-hmm. And I think you know there very well could have been, you know, many uh, mass extinctions in the past. Um, I think about like you know when photosynthesis, uh, oxygenic photosynthesis came on the scene and started poisoning the whole planet with oxygen Mm. you know that you know organisms had to adapt to evolve ways of dealing with that i'm sure that was a big deal and many died i'm i'm sure there were mass extinctions but they were just little bacteria i don't know if 50 percent or more of the bacteria died that's another interesting question probably i don't i don't know though um and that you know maybe it happened over fairly short period of time too um so that's kind of how uh i think of what a way to that's that's what i think when i hear you ask that question um right we don't know these are the five that we've got in our current models and we've got some good evidence for them whatever exactly right um and you know primarily obviously we're talking about organisms that leave hard parts you know, um, that have and how long parts. ago was the most recent? It was 65 million. Sometimes people say 66 million. Is uh, there any pattern on. to the interstitial duration between any of these? But you know how you, they might say, I, I don't We didn't, I don't remember talking about this in the climate change one, but that maybe there's some pattern to you. Oh yeah. You're going to get an ice age every X number of years. Is there anything, there's not very many with only five, there's not much of a pattern yet. Can you say, oh yeah, we're due. Yeah, Mount Hood, <laughs> like, Mount Hood should have blown, it's going to, uh-huh. you know, we're, can we say that about mass extinctions? Um, it's, it's interesting that you asked that question, and we'll, we'll definitely, I think, hopefully get around to that in a more, well, not that much more full, but... um like in due time kind of thing. But definitely, I think um, there was a moment, I think, when one could say that. You know what I mean? Like when one could be like, oh, fuck, we're due for a mass extinction. Um, But that's in part due to kind of a little, I think, a fervor. There was a signal in the data, and there's a fervor around asteroid impacts. Um and I think everybody was just like, oh, my God, you know, like, and so I think there was a little more, it was a little more intense with respect to that. I'm being vague, but on purpose. Oh, all right. I'm jumping the gun. All right. But in general, so, yeah, so Newell, he kind of got this thing going where they started to, people started to pay a little more attention. And, of course, again, he wanted to infuse more of an evolutionary approach. And so his students were well-versed in evolution um and there were there were plenty of other people who were well versed in evolution but he was just one of those people and it's kind of the zeitgeist things were moving along and uh again he had a student by the name of stephen jay gold he also had a student by the name of niles eldridge and these two people together put out a paper at one point 
that introduced at least the term punctuated equilibria, um, which is has its own history and degree of controversy, I suppose. Um, even though Niles Eldred had already figured out the pattern um, uh, and published it elsewhere beforehand. And also he's written a book since talking about how like, you know, Darwin knew about it, you know, and I don't even feel like you need to go into the notes, but it's all very much part of Darwin's dilemma. This idea of punctuated equilibria, which treats the fossil record as if it is just telling you like, yeah, no, things don't just change. Things sort of stay the same for a while. And then every once in a while, there's a big burst of change, you know, Um, which was not, you know, what someone like Darwin would want to hear after just spelling out all this stuff with natural selection and, you know, his principles of divergence and all these other aspects. But um, what I'm kind of ultimately getting to is getting to this idea of, you know, sort of the more in-depth study of diversity curves. Because when we, we, people hear about the terms mass extinction, maybe in the, in the, you know, social media or public sphere or whatever, they may not have a good sense for, you know, that this stuff comes from, you know, these, these dorks, you know, collecting data that, you know, not even really going to the outcrop, but going to the library instead and collecting all the information they could from various papers of people who did go to outcrops and reported what they, you know, collected and all that and getting all the extra data that they would need about like, you know, time and, and, you know, how, you know, how many and all that kind of stuff. One thing that I don't hear in the media is the term diversity curve. What does that mean and why is it coming up? Diversity curve is just a, you know, the, the vernacular for talking about um, amount of diversity through time and you plot it on a, you know, graph, you know, and so you can have a line that moves up and down, you know, and you have the X axis is time and the Y axis is how many, you know, that's kind of, that's all it is. Oh, so so then a mass extinction is a drastic alteration of a diversity curve. Yeah. Super dip, you know, super Mm -hmm. big dip in diversity. So anyway, so Gould has a guy who's a student of his and this guy's, name is John Sapkowski and John Sapkowski gets into this stuff. And so does this other guy named David Ropp. And these two guys become the guys for this stuff, you know? And uh, so, yeah, maybe Newell had this big five thing, but they started studying diversity and they were, you know, putting together all these statistical treatments and, uh, you know, other arguments about, well, you know, there could be, um, you know, there could be problems like Darwin said with the fossil record, because, you know, like we, you know, not only is it that, you know, you could say there's a pattern, this Benjamin Button pattern I was talking about earlier, where you've got, you know, younger rocks have, you know, fossils that, you know, look similar to the organisms we have today. But also, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, sediment that has yet to be destroyed. These formations, these beds of sediment that have been laid down, they've yet to be destroyed completely. Um you know, in the, in the, the more recently they've been deposited. And then as you go further back, as you were saying, like 4 billion years or whatever, we don't hardly have anything because it's been, there's been so much time to get destroyed. Uh, and so that became another issue that they wanted to, there were all these various preservation biases that 
they wanted to account for. So that it got kind of quite nuanced in the kind of, you know, work they were doing just on the data that they had collected. And so it became very quantitative. And, you know, ultimately they did start to study, you know, mass extinction. And it was interesting because, yeah, one of the patterns that they came up with was that there's a, uh, uh, every 26 million years, there's a mass extinction, <laughs> you know? And so you'd be like, oh shit, we're due for one, you know, as you were talking about earlier. Um, it turns out that that might not be, I mean, that just might be, you know, just the way it is, but there, there's no real causal explanation. It's just maybe a statistical artifact or something along those lines. And even so, even if we bought it, given that time scale, I, th- depending on what the precise meaning of do is, we could be, we could accurately say that we're due for it for what? Like 200,000 years. Yeah, right. Um, of course, the thing about mass extinctions, when they happen, they happen really quickly. Right. So anytime we're talking about things like this, the vague time terms, like quickly, <laughs> are relative to very large scales. So what do you mean when you say a mass extinction happens really quickly? Well, yeah, exactly. So uh, one of the estimates is, I think it's something like for the Permian mass extinction, where Permian mass extinction is upwards of like maybe 90% um, of uh, marine organisms went extinct. Um, That's a really big number because the ocean seems to be in many parts teeming with life kind of thing. To have just these dead oceans is kind of weird. But, you know, they're thinking that even generally, like I think even on land and in the ocean, something like 60% of the faunas, I think it's 60, uh, went extinct in uh, 20,000 years, uh, which is for, I mean... I know that may not mean anything to general viewers, but, uh, you know, 20,000 years ago, roughly, is when we were at our last glacial maximum, you know, and Homo sapiens was around, uh, you know, hunting and fishing and, uh, and did like permanent camping. And, um, you know, it was by 10,000 or so years ago that people think that agriculture really got going, although it looks like recently there's been some bread found. That's like, I don't know, older than that. Um, but, you know, so 20,000 years isn't that long a period when you think about 4 billion or whatever. Um, yeah, I'm or, trying to think of different questions to ask to try to give some sort of context to that. How long does it take for a typical speciation event to occur? You think up to a hundred years, or oh, that's I mean, pretty quick. A hundred years, years is some estimates, yeah. Oh wow, okay, so um, it's way longer than that. What else? Way longer than that. Is but are I there mean, any other examples of things that take twenty thousand ish years? No, or I mean, like, it, how do we how do we get our brains around this? Scale. This is like the this is like ge- geology education one oh one. How do we teach people about geological time? Yeah. Um let's see. Uh I you know, I I 
I didn't prepare for that right. today. No, <laughs> uh, no, but it's a good question. How, what is, you know, to our 2.1 viewers out there, uh, what does 20,000 years mean to them? Um, you know, it's... Because the, the one that you used actually, to me, makes it sound like a really long time, though we wanted it to seem like a short time, right? The people who want course, to say yeah. mass extinctions are important. And, and, uh, but then if you say, well, you know, Homo sapiens was barely around and we were still camping and in the caves, that makes it sound to me in a totally ignorant sense. But that sounds like a long time then. Yeah, I mean, my, my guess is that... It's so hard to do, like, if you want to talk about, like, generations. Because, you know, we as, you know, Homo sapiens or whatever, um, and your dogs and deer and all these other kinds of large organisms like ourselves, you have overlapping generations. It's not discrete. It's not like, you know, you're born, you mate, you give birth, but then you die. and then Yeah, we're not mayflies. We're not fucking mayflies. So I want to say maybe something like 20,000 years, and this is a bad calculation, but if we live, if our generation time is like 25 years before we end up having kids or and roughly if we die or whatever, I don't know. And of course we keep getting older and anyway, things are changing to some extent, biasing the estimate, but you can imagine something between like 600 and 800 generations. So that's a lot of generations, right? I mean, I don't know how accurate that is, but you can, you know, just thinking in those terms of like hundreds of generations, um, that's a long time ago for one of us, but to have, you know, um, you know, one of us being one lineage or whatever, but to have uh, then like, you know, 60% of all the lineages go away, or something along those lines. That's kind right, of... Here, here's another uh, one of those quote-unquote good questions that you didn't prepare for. Nice. What percentage of species go extinct on average every 20,000 years? So in a mass extinction 20, we've got like more than 50%. Take uh-huh. any... Ra- like what is... What do we lose, usually lose in 20,000 when we're not in a mass extinction? Because I'm assuming that certain number of species go extinct every day, whatever, all the time. Yeah, no, um, it's, uh, I, I, uh, can't say, I'm sure. Yeah, no, no, I, know. I used to know. And the number that's popping into my head is like 1.8. That's <laughs> like 1.8. Oh, damn, what, Ryan? Right. Okay. Well, 1.8%? Um, hold on. Hold on. It's, you know, it'd be like 1.8. No, it's a different unit entirely. Uh, let me, let me uh, just, I'm going to do a little snazzy look up here. Um, hold on. Uh, hold on. Play the theme song. Uh, boop boop ba doop. Boop boop ba doop doop. <laughs> boop boop ba doop doop. Um I gotta find my notes. You can just keep talking and I'm just this is all part of it, guys. Two point one viewers. Um <clears throat> This is just one of those. we're accumulating evidence that this is 
Live and unedited. That's what it is. Yes. Hold on. <laughs> uh, it isn't right at this moment, which, I mean, I guess it could be if you really wanted it to be. And then I could, like, make it sm- sound super smooth. Like, I'm like, this is how much or whatever. Yeah. Um, But it's something like, uh, let me find it. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, where are you? Anyway, it was like 1.8. You know, they round it up to two usually. Um, but I lost it. I don't actually have the ability to look it up. That sucks. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's it's a it's a pretty small number, and then I would just have to multiply that times twenty thousand or whatever. Um, but that would be considered what's called background extinction. And that's not a ton. So mass extinction is at least it's orders of magnitude worse than background. Yeah, yeah. You can't for sure. miss it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's huge. Um, so we've got five examples w- to get this twenty thousand year average. Are they? relatively similar or is one a hundred thousand and one happened in a day or what you know we right right i think they're not all similar um you know they're just what we can come up with an estimate for say you know they're they're doing a lot of attempts to estimate the uh you know the the permian one that's that's received quite a bit of attention because of how extensive an extinction event it was um but in general, yeah, it's pretty pretty quick. The who cares about the goddamn numbers anyway? We're get we're not concentrating on what the people want. What is the reason <laughs> for the five? What's the cause? What made these big five happen? Right. Well, so I figure instead of focusing on all of them, we could just focus on two. What happened and- in two of them? Your favorite two extinctions. <laughs> I just figure I'll just pick the most popular ones. So I love it that someone would have like a favorite extinction event. This one's my favorite. Yeah, we put it on our dating profiles nowadays, right? I like the Permian <laughs> extinction. <laughs> so, Jesus Christ. <sighs> um, so the causes for the Permian are, there's many, you know, um, there's... Uh, you know, uh, you know, there's there's this you know anoxia in the oceans, uh, meaning you know just the, there's a lack of oxygen that developed. Um, for a long time, people always used to talk about sea level changes, were just you know, and it and it wouldn't have anything other than to do with I think somewhat to do with plate tectonics and just the natural changes that occur, and it would screw everything up for organisms that were living in the more shallow areas, and maybe it would have an effect on. Uh, the land, but a lot of these people who study these again diversity curves. The reason why they do th- study diversity curves, and they talk a lot about marine organisms, is because there's an abundance of them, so they can actually do some statistics and whatnot. Um, whereas organisms that are on land just don't preserve nearly as well. And um, but anyway, uh, to continue, uh, there's other ones where just like the increased acidification of the ocean. There's you know all these various you know, environmental, physical, chemical, 
uh, things that people have proposed, these causes that people have proposed to have you know, wiped out organisms uh, in huge amounts um, in these big five. Uh, if you talk about the Permian, it's those, but it's also um, uh, considered, uh, you know, that they're the, the largest that we have a record of outpouring of lava. And of course, this happened over a long period of time, but it's all related to the same source, I guess, is something called the Siberian Traps. And these this outpouring of lava was, you know, just huge, just a giant, massive amount, continent-sized amount of lava. Like, you know, you can think of the lava pouring forth on Hawaii, you know, flowing down to the ocean and stuff like that. Just the, but so much larger, you know, and it was in Siberia and it was just, Huge, but the thing about one of the so things... So obviously that, out of a bunch of different holes. Yeah. We're not uh, talking more one less, angry mountain. No, yeah. it's These are large fissures that form, but not like one forms in North America and one forms in South America, but like they all formed in this one area in uh, Siberia and then poured forth from there. And uh, I think there's been a recent paper that's suggesting very strongly that that's what caused the mass extinction. But one of the things that happens with the mass extinction um, event like that is, uh, you know, the or the outpouring of the, sorry, not the mass extinction event, the outpouring of the lavas is that, I was mentioning this in the climate change episode, but that there's a tremendous amount of greenhouse gases that come out. And so that would have maybe really abruptly caused a tr- like a huge amount of climate change, which could have an effect on all the various components of the Earth system that might have messed things up for uh, organisms. So that's one of the explanations. There's another one almost I, everybody yeah. cares about climate, right? That's it's going right. to be pretty hard to be an organism on Earth and for climate to be an irrelevant factor. That's right. Um, but there's a uh, there's one hypothesis out there that I thought was pretty wild. Um, and it kind of shows you sort of the some of the extremes of, you know, what people can kind of suggest might have an influence. You know, and this is like a this one is like a butterfly flaps its wings and like everyone goes extinct kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> so there's this one um, paper and it was put out in 2014 and the lead author's last name is Rothman. I can't remember um, the rest of them. I think it was in science or something like that, <clears throat> but it was published that it proposed that the largest, the mass extinction, the Permian, um, which again happened like at 252 million years ago, might have been precipitated by a single horizontal gene transfer. So, what? Horizontal, I know. A horizontal gene transfer, um, <laughs> for those who might not be familiar, is where, you know, um, a, you know, bacteria, say, um, is able to, you know, take in genetic information from outside its cell wall and then incorporate it into its own genome and do stuff. Um, and this can, you know, it can happen in various ways. Um, it could take gene, genes that are just free-floating, you know, DNA out there. 
um or it can you know uh like be directly like uh impregnated or whatever um uh i think it's literally called conjugation <laughs> and uh and then there's uh you know like a virus could infect it and like have this dna from another uh um bacteria or something like that and it gets this power you know um anyway uh yeah it can create quite a bit of uh it can it, it's for instance it's how um like in many ways uh you know we have you know this um antibiotic problem today because of i think primarily horizontal gene transfer so bacteria and stuff bacteria and stuff um can you know there's so much variation they reproduce super rapidly um and they can transfer their genes amongst each other and in doing so if one is immune to some or has the ability to deal with some antibiotic it can just easily transfer it to another and of course they're dividing you know like crazy and they're passing it around and stuff and so that's how they can become immune to the antibiotic and it no longer works um so that's this kind of thing another thing really quickly to say about <laughs> the craziness of a single horizontal gene transfer is there are these guys these cell biologists um one was named thane pop papke or something like that another one's peter gogarten i don't know these fucking europeans kidding if you 2.1 or <laughs> european anyway um they ask us to to consider that like if acacia trees could exchange DNA with lions and that the resulting new tree developed quote unquote limbs that allowed them to attack grazing giraffes. Like this is in a sense what the prokaryotes do all the time is what they're saying. And so this alleged transfer that happened 252 million years ago or a little bit before, um, there's problems with this whole thing, but I still think it's hilarious because it's one of the causes that's been proposed, and I think it's, like, amazing. But anyway, this transfer, this alleged transfer, is between, like, an archaea, which is not a bacteria, like, a true bacteria or whatever. It's it's, an, it's a, Usually they, these types of organisms are found in extreme environments, like, um, you know, uh, what am I, hot water geysers and stuff like that. Um and so an archaea and then a bacteria, a bacterial cousin of, oddly enough, this colitis causing um, bacteria called Clostridium difficile. C. diff is what it's called in hospitals. Anyway, um, it created an accidental, like, infectious, well, uh, it, what am I trying to say? It created this, I guess you could almost say like this huge methane explosion because one of the things that apparently is created by these huge Siberian traps, this this volcanic eruption of just a tremendous amount of obviously carbon dioxide and stuff like that, but tons of lava and lots of all the elements that are in that was like, I guess, a lot of nickel. And this hybrid organism or this organism that has the capacity to... Um, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, reproduce really quickly, um, which is the actual uh, horizontal gene transfer. I apologize. I think I jumped around a little there. Um, it essentially uh, um, produced a ton of methane. 
for thinking. And that the methane, because it required nickel, which just happened to be there for its metabolism, you know, metabolic processes, which then it was, it was doubling in an insane way. It was, it was like super explosive. Um, created this huge methane burst, which they think went up into the atmosphere then and caused an intense amount of greenhouse gases and climate change, which screwed up everything and killed like, you know, over 80% of the marine animal species and stuff. So anyway, so there's that. So there, these are the kind of causes that have been put out, put forth, but um, so that version agrees with the the cause. This is kind of a second. That's the cause of the cause, but they're agreeing yeah. that it was the big uh, emission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was the right. Yeah, so these things are all like super connected, one to each other. Um, but anyway, uh, so there is that. And that's and, the, that was the big one, right? Where you said it's over ninety percent. Yeah, you know, for some, I think. Yeah, I don't. They revise the numbers a lot over time, and so I'm like, okay, you know, which is it? Um, Wait, you're telling me science isn't just like all the Joe Friday facts, and it's just decided, and we're done, and we know certain things because science yeah. says it. Science says, shut up. No, yes. I, Are you a I postmodernist? Think- what is, I mean, you don't... I hate America. That's oh all it really God. comes down to. <laughs> well, I kind of want to just take a quick little aside, though, just we can get back to it, because, I mean, we're pretty much done with the causes of the Permian. But that guy, David Ropp, uh, he wrote a book called uh, Extinction, Bad Genes or Bad Luck. And... Um, uh, he was one of those diversity curve people who studied extinction and stuff, and they did all the statistical treatments. And he, you know, he recently died. He was in his 80s. He fell off a ladder or some horrible thing like that. Um, and, uh, but anyway, um, he has in, like, because we were talking in the climate change episode where it was just like 99% of all, uh, you know, um, you know, climate scientists agree or whatever with, you know, or not climate scientists, but the scientific community, you know, 99% of it agrees with the, that the earth is changing and that we're causing it or whatever. Um, and then I mentioned there was that one about like 99% of all species are extinct, you know, right. all that, you know? Mm-hmm. um, and he has in his first chapter of that book, and I don't know why I didn't think about this. It's the first chapter is called almost all species are extinct. <laughs> And I just want to read really quickly because I think it's hilarious because he's sort of having fun with it. He goes, almost all professional football players are still alive. The same is probably true for nuclear physicists, city planners, and tax consultants. This survival record is due in part to the newness of the professional football, nuclear physics, and so on, and in part to population growth. There are lots more people now than ever before. Nathan Kafitz, the great demographer, estimated in 1966 that about 4% of all the people who had ever lived were alive then. Again, newness and population growth. Not so for species! <laughs> it literally has like <laughs> exclamation points and stuff, which I just thought was hilarious. And then he talks about, uh, he talks, he's like, there are millions of different species and animal, of animals and plants on Earth, possibly as many as 40 million but somewhere between five and 
50 billion species have existed at one time or another. Thus, only about one in a thousand species is still alive. A truly lousy survival record. 99.9% failure. Anyway, I just thought that was hilarious. There you go, people. 99% of all species are extinct. There, for you. I have a hard time figuring out what to say about that as someone who is skeptical of (laughs) species as a concept. But, I mean, it may... Skeptical, yeah. Well, of everything, yeah, what? What? (laughs) I know, I was going to say, I was like, well, what are you not skeptical of? General semantics. All right. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Where... Uh yeah okay so what about it Spe- about most of the species that have ever been aren't now. Oh, I was just having fun. I just remembered that last thing. I mean, this was. Can aside. you <laughs> stop being a species by going forward instead of backward? Can you evolve out of yourself? <laughs> you In this guy's yourself? calculus. Uh. So you can go extinct, but can you also just? entirely branch or something what used to be this lineage is now these other three species but there are no longer any of these you know 600 generations ago types because now they're all different we are talking about mass extinction all right what's another one so you you told me about where the permian one came from what what's another example talk about what every child loves dinosaurs and they're dead um why do children love dinosaurs is that a different week (laughs) no that's a pretty we can talk about that today i don't know why kids love dinosaurs i never was a dinosaur lover Lover, 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 lover. um i always just thought you know they were cool but i i always liked like tigers as well and so i never i don't i don't know um big fierce and extinct is one of the things that you know it's like it's big uh so that's charismatic about it because you can go oh it's so huge and it's fierce because they got all those teeth and they look crazy and then but they're no longer around so they can't hurt you i don't know and do kids just like big stuff because they're impressed with their fathers or what (laughs) wait I thought no, now, okay, now I we're was, doing psychology. We're really yeah, like where's uh, you needed to say that with like Freud's accent or like you know the mockery of a sham version of his accent. <laughs> Do you like big dinosaurs because of your phagia or something? <laughs> uh, anyway, this is the best episode ever. Um, I'm like just like everybody's fascinated. With the death of the dinosaurs, because everybody's fascinated by dinosaurs and death. Yes. Why did all the dinosaurs die? And I quote from a guy named Peter Brennan in his book, The Ends of the World. A rock larger than Mount Everest hit planet Earth, traveling 20 times faster than a bullet. This is so fast that it would have traversed the distance from the cruising altitude of a 747 to the ground in 0.3 seconds. The asteroid was so large, even at the moment of impact, the top of it might have still towered a mile above 
the cruising altitude of a 747. And I'll step aside for a second here and say that also, that was a quote, also apparently the pressure from the atmosphere of the thing coming down, and this is just all like the asteroid impact modeling that's been done, the pressure in the air was so great that it started to excavate a crater before the, the fucking thing even hit. Not only that, but it was so like unimpressed by the atmosphere of the Earth based on like the models that they have and stuff that the, it just created a vacuum of space like trailing behind it. And I quote, in Chicxulub, which is a place in Mexico, I'm not quoting now, the asteroid instantaneously put a hole in the ground more than 20 miles deep, deep enough, astoundingly, to puncture the Earth's mantle and stretching more than 60 miles wide. Over the next few unimaginable seconds, the Earth behaved like the surface of a pond after a rock has been thrown in. Complex peaks and ripples resonated throughout the Yucatan before being frozen in place as crazy ready-made mountain ranges that would have loomed over the crater floor as high as the Himalayas. End quote. So, that's a very... Jesus Christ! (laughs) Isn't that insane? And this was an interview he did with one of these modelers or whatever. The la- the punchline at the end is him saying like, "So there's like dinosaur bones on the moon," and the guy was like, "Probably." I'm like, and there's fuck. people. I know people worried about nine eleven. What the hell? Yeah, this is like way worse than that. Way worse. And it was just super fast. And one of the things they say was like, "You would have been like in the Yucatan. It'd been a nice, pleasant day. One second, and then the next." It would have just been like everyone's dead. It would have happened that fast, you know? Uh, or, I mean, well, within a second, actually. So, yeah, insane. So that was the death of the dinosaurs. Um, well, that was the... Well, all right, how fast did that one happen? Because I was assuming that it would be more accurate to say that was the event that led eventually to the death of the dinosaurs. Sure. I could have How- said that was the death of the dinosaur standing next to the crater when it yeah. hit. Or, <laughs> um, the death of the one dinosaur on ground zero. Um, yeah, obviously. So what happens after that is all this material gets thrown up into the atmosphere. And one of the hypotheses is that with all the particulates in the atmosphere reflecting the sunlight, Um, it created a sort of winter, if you will, because there's just so much material now killing off all the plants and starting a, you know, a a chain reaction through the ecosystem where, Mm -hmm. you know, no one can eat. And so block out the sun and then the plants can't eat the sunlight and then there's no plants for the dinosaurs to eat and they all starve. Yeah. And so, and there was a big, it was a, there was a big impact with respect. (laughs) There was a, um, Huge influence on the marine realm as well. Uh, so like mosasaurs and all these marine reptiles uh, went extinct. Um, what percent are we talking about at this one? This one, I can't ever get like a full commitment. <clears throat> but I, you know, I know that like 
you know, uh, you know, obviously well over 50%, but I don't think it was up mm-hmm. towards 90 or something. But look at the, look at the curves. I guess that's what I could do. Um, but a lot, you know. I get partially distracted by the aspect of the example that I think we kind of nodded at before in this episode, but just where they're like, well, a thing as big as Mount Everest yeah. came in a third of a second, you know, and you you maybe employed 10 different versions of that sort of exemplar. And I know, I realize that I'm someone who has hyper particular standards about understanding but i wonder how much of the wow factor in examples like that is tone of voice or number of exclamation points at the end of a sentence versus appreciation of scale because i just i hear that example all right well an asteroid the size of mount everest did something went on an adventure and Mm. I'm just like, I don't know, is that big? Is that a big asteroid? I don't know anything about asteroids. I don't know. But I think <laughs> other people say, oh, whoa, it's big as Mount, e- Mount Everest is huge. Well, yeah. you know, all these terms are meaningless until you appreciate the relativity aspects. But anyways, we're supposed to be impressed. It was a big deal and it killed a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also it's sort of, I mean, it's in a way, I mean, some of it was how I read it, but also, I mean, I think it's the science writer's job to try and convey scale and things like that, even though I don't really know what how big Mount Everest is either. I know it's the tallest and whatnot, but like, what what is the chunk known as Mount Everest? You know, I don't know if there is... Right, but then you've got the other guys <laughs> telling you uh, if you shrink the Earth down to the size of a billiard ball, it is smoother right. than the fanciest uh, cue ball that's ever been machined. Right. And then Mount Everest is very flat. So it's all difficult. But anyway, you know. And then when you try to get specific about it and ask, all right, well, how can I really get a handle on 20,000 years? Those kind of questions are hard. But they're trying. They are trying, exactly. And I think um, you just but have to they, have... Yeah, like but a, then I wonder what they're really trying to do and we get into all the rhetoric of are they trying to convey an understanding or appreciation of the magnitude of the event or are they trying to blow your mind? And I think <laughs> a lot of times it's the latter because... What they want to do is make people care about science and get money and whatever. All right. I think Other this, topics. This case, well, hold on. But I think, yeah, I think this in this case, the quote that I gave, to me, I didn't get the sense they were just trying to wow. I think they were trying to convey science with some degree of enthusiasm. Um, and the way that the sentences are crafted, people who try and wow, they don't spend enough. They don't spend time like this person clearly did, I think. And I can hear a, someone's voice in there, you know, and that's a, I, 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 it's a little bit, that's some points in their favor, in my opinion. But definitely, I think a lot of times they're just trying to wow. And speaking of which, 
Speaking of wow, Harlan, did you know that we're in a sixth mass extinction right now? What can I do about this? <laughs> well, apparently, if I'm you very to... concerned, I want to I want to fix it. <laughs> well, that's the thing, apparently. Um uh there <laughs> there uh, there's an article that, that this guy who I quoted um did with um this one guy who's a sort of an expert if you will in the Permian mass extinction the the expert's name is uh Doug Irwin and uh you know his whole thing is you know he he asked Doug Irwin you know like you know are we in a mass extinction and let me see if I can pull some more fun quotes uh so he says, um, he goes, surely we've earned our place in the pantheon next to the greatest ecological catastrophes of all time, the so-called big five mass extinctions of Earth history. Surely our Anthropocene, harken back to a climate change episode, I think I mentioned that. Anyway, our Anthropocene extinction can confidently take its place next to the juggernaut of deep time, the Ordovician, the Devonian, Permian, Triassic, Cretaceous. Irwin says no. He thinks it's junk science. And Irwin says, in quote, Many of those making facile comparisons between the current situation and past mass extinctions don't have a clue about the difference in the nature of the data, much less how truly awful the mass extinctions recorded in the marine fossil record actually were. It is absolutely critical to recognize that I am not claiming that humans haven't done great damage to marine and terrestrial ecosystems, nor that many extinctions have not occurred, and more will certainly occur in the near future. But I do think that as scientists, we have to have a responsibility to be accurate about such comparisons. So there's something for you, Harlan. Somebody who's like, hey, you can't just throw out Mount Everest and think you've done it, you know, or whatever. Like, hey, did you know we're in a sixth mass, ex mass extinction? At least somebody's saying, like, no, I don't know if we're in a sixth mass extinction. Um, he goes on about, he has this whole, um, power grid analogy and how people don't understand why the power grid fails. And that kind of, once you realize that it's about, you know, that it's failing, it's too late. You can't do anything to stop it. And his, uh, suggestion is that that's how mass extinctions are. It's like, you know, it's too late. Once it starts, there's no way to stop the mass extinction. He's like, we're not at that point yet. Are we, you know, he's, he's you know, he's suggesting that we're not. And uh, he says, if we really are in a mass extinction, go get a case of scotch, is his suggestion. Uh, I don't know if that plays off of any of your concerns from prior or not, but I think that's interesting. It's something I have not heard uh, many people talk about or say. I feel like you skipped to the voice of reason before you gave enough airtime to the hysterics. <laughs> so, what? Damn it! The people who claim that we are in the sixth mass extinction in the Anthropocene, which is what relatively recent, is that just like Industrial Revolution and after, or is that sure. since we started farming, or when is that? Let's just say Industrial Revolution. Okay, so super fresh. If we're talking twenty thousand years as the low end, and a hundred million years as the you know that's what we so. We're talking less than 200 years, super tiny. 
So this Anthropocene mass extinction, is it not the claim by certain people that it's caused by human beings? Yeah. That we are a, that we're special, right? You like, that's another potential debate topic, but human beings are special in, if no other way, in no other respect than that we have affected the earth systems more than most other species most of the time. If we're going to find an example, you're going to have to go to something like the one you often reference of photosynthesis, right? It's got to be, right? might that be comparable, but most aren't. Right. The fact that we can survive and reproduce and influence ecosystems the globe over, we can be in Death Valley, we can be in Antarctica, doing bad things, <laughs> polluting, littering, whatever we do. And that we... I don't even know if this is one. That our population explodes at a rate more than most others. I suppose some insects could kick our ass on that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, but we're we're growing quite a bit, you know? I mean, that's all I think you need to say. We're growing and we're growing everywhere. We aren't obviously limited in any ecological fashion. Right. We just figure out how to dress and shelter and move electrons around and do what we need to do so that we can keep going wherever we want to go. Right. And we're putting all the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and altering the climate. And we're, we hunt certain things to extinction. So like really intimate extinctions, like we literally kill you and eat you or drive you off cliffs, whatever, you know, that we're just purposefully fucking with you. Or the accidental <laughs> stuff like climate change. We raise the mean global temperature by one degree Fahrenheit and that makes the species who are very sensitive, they get a little finicky and uh, put their hand to their forehead and keel over. <laughs> they get the bullet too. So that, I mean, that's the point, right? With these six math ex- mass extinction people, that w- human beings by being very successful, are harming and eliminating in many in a multivariate manner many other species, driving them out. And we're yep. helping some, like the crows and the whatever. They, the ones that are symbiotic with us do great. Very few things are symbiotic with us, and so they're in big trouble. And we're driving many species to extinction. So after you say all that, you know, you got to give five minutes to that shit before you say, ah, but then there's this other scientist who's actually reasonable. (laughs) And he said, you know, (laughs) revisionist podcast. Um, yeah, I screwed the pooch there, but you know, editing. No, I'm joking. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure you could have done a better job than I at explaining the sixth mass extinction point. But that's the gist, right? Yeah, we are we are everywhere. We are fucking everything up. We are creating an intense amount of erosion that's not been seen for a long time, as far as our you know understanding the rock record is concerned. Um, obviously, there's climate change, anthropogenic 
driven climate change, like you said, um, there are extinctions occurring primarily because of, again, our, our land use practices uh, and our ocean, uh, you know, we're overfishing, we're overhunting, we're doing all those things. And, um, and a few are coming along for the ride, but a lot of them just ain't. Uh, and that's sort of the major concern. Um, you know, and, and maybe that was just how that, um, you know, Doug Irwin guy was feeling that day. Um, maybe he feels that way every day. I don't know, but I think the primary issue that people tend to, primary issue that I would think about is, you know, what happens after these mass extinctions? So like, okay, the mass extinction happens, you know, almost everybody's dead. Uh, what do you, what's going on then? And before I talk about that, I want to kind of quickly just look at some smaller scale environmental disturbances. Um, so for instance, uh, if you look at say uh, clear cuts, I think it's a sort of a general uh, thing I, I've learned in ecology is that, you know, when you when you cut all the trees down in a place like you know the Pacific Northwest or whatever in a big area, um, you typically you're going to have streams and stream flow and all that kind of stuff. But you've cut all these trees down, and what the trees tend to do is they're you know huge. Uh, they have a huge capacity for uptaking a lot of nutrients, all the different elements and their element cycles and all that kind of stuff. And um, not only that, but they also stabilize the uh, the soils that are on these slopes that maybe slope down into these streams. And the streams themselves also have their own little freshwater aquatic systems. They got little invertebrates and they got little fish and, you know, algae, etc. Um, and so if you remove all the trees, eventually if the, you know, still raining and still getting soaked in this, in the slopes and all that, the trees aren't there to really help hold the slope, the soil on the slope, then, you know, that material is just going to slide down into the, into the streams. Not only that, but also because they're not taking up all those different nutrients like nitrogen, et cetera, uh, that's going in high concentrations into these streams and totally like killing off, you know, these little, uh, freshwater ecosystems, um, you know, just effectively kind of like poisoning them with just concentrations that are just too high because you're messing with the cycles. Right. And another thing is, you know, if you remove wolves from Yellowstone or whatever, then the elk and deer are like, well, fucking no one's hunting after us. We can go wherever we want. And so they go wherever they want and they eat everything and nothing is able to grow in these streams and the riparian zones and all that. But you reintroduce the wolves, then all the deer and elk are like, oh, shit. And they have to, like, it changes their behavior as to where they go, when, and, you know, uh, and why. And then all of a sudden, these riparian zones grow back. And you got the little Tweety birds. And all of a sudden, it just seems like, oh, diversity has returned. And another thing is, you know, in the Serengeti, you got elephants knocking down trees left and right, making room for other kinds of plant species that other organisms might depend on. So you have this, you know, you have a network, an ecological network. Some of, some of it's, to some degree, uh, food webs. You could say, but just in general, you've got a lot of factors in any ecosystem that are going, um, that are taking place and interacting. And so, you know, after a mass extinction, you kind of remove a lot of those players, right? 
like they're just gone and and some populations are going to explode and have an effect on their environment in the way that they do things and there'll be others that just don't have any you know other lineages out there that they might have indirectly relied on and so you know now you've got this like shithole of a planet you know because every you know for the life that was living at least before and it sounds like comes even later as well so there's these like I think to an extent there can be millions of years where the earth just doesn't have its act together in terms of the ecosystems on the surface of the planet. There've been some studies that have, you know, suggested that things are just sort of really upended quite a bit. And I guess because of the effects that we're having on the surface of earth today, I guess, I guess that would be the, that would be a real negative if we did, really have a, a negative you know, like a, a bad impact on how you know things cycle and you know we just start to poison ourselves um that's the that's the bad thing and if we don't if we do it too quickly we might not be able to adapt you know or maybe even outsmart the problem um so that would be the only real you know to me the real downside whether there's a sixth mass extinction based on the technical definitions of mass extinction or not, just that we'd be fucking with things and just, you know, I, I think this is another one that I think could potentially end on a down note this episode. Nah. <laughs> this one's fine. This one's fine. Well, so, of course, mass extinctions are, to the extent that they are, on an extremely high level of abstraction. You have to accept so many things in order to include mass extinctions as an event in your description of what's happening around here, right? Mm. That it's easy for some of us not really to worry about them. But one of the... An issue... That was brought up in my mind by what you just said. And we can see if this generates discussion or just use that. Nah, that's a, a distraction. <laughs> From the point of view of any given individual organism, not even lineage, not even species, but just any individual, what if we made this claim? It's what matters to it is its environment, period. Some of its environment is organic and some is inorganic. But from its perspective of achieving its goals in light of its values or whatever existential description of organisms we invent. So, yeah, mass extinction in an... It opens up space and it reduces options, right? Because there, mm -hmm. if you're a bat and one of the things you care about is accumulating proteins to facilitate your metabolism, and if there's a mass extinction of non-gape-limited insects, like other, whatever, other species in your environment, then you care about those, but you also care about 
what temperature it is outside and what if there's still oxygen to breathe and if uh, there wasn't a massive insta-created mountain range as apparently there was in the Permian after the <laughs> asteroid hit. Oh, so that cretaceous. you are flying along and you smash into the side, you know, you wily coyote yourself into the side of an insta mountain. All of these things are what matter to you. Some of them are living things and some of them aren't living things. But in from your perspective, it kind of doesn't matter. So whether you are attempting to pick your way through life in the midst of a mass extinction or not i don't know how big a deal is it everybody's got to deal with their environment all the time some environments are more highly fluctuating on certain dimensions than others either way there's problems and there's attempts to solve problems I don't know if I'm even talking about this topic anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, I would just equate it to the idea that, like, so you're a fish, and you're in this stream, and your stream just keeps getting worse and worse. And, you know, you can't seem to outswim the worst thing. You know, it's like, but you have absolutely zero control over it. It's, I don't think you have a solution to the problem. I think you just die. You know? That was... That was that was kind of the thinking that I had about, you know, the environment. In some cases, you know, it it's it's at a scale, and at a, um, you know, at a measure far greater than the individual organism can do anything about. And so it can try and continue to, you know, do what it can, and hopefully. There's some luck involved, and there's some good genes involved, and maybe there's some way out of it, maybe not for the individual, but maybe for its offspring or something like that. But I don't know. Um, but that's what I was trying to get at, I think. Okay. The example you just gave also I would classify as an inorganic environmental alteration right. to which we need to respond or die. And mass extinction periods would be primarily organic environmental alterations to which I need to respond or die. But either way, that sort of thing either is or might be happening every morning. We don't know the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Right? Oh, yeah. Russell's well, after chicken that, and whatever. You know. I could tell that the asteroid impact thing, like <laughs> it's like having an, an impact. Yeah, I mean, you could just be do-do-do, and they're like, Having you know. an impact. Oh, that was brilliant. Listen, I've been saying impact too much, too. But, yeah, I mean, um, you know, they're always out there. They're always like, ooh. You know, like, sometimes they'll they'll mention that on the news. They'll be like, that was a close one. And they talk about, like, a asteroid that went by. They're like, well, we caught that one late, you know, or whatever. So it's totally possible that there's stuff out there that we can't that we're not detecting in any particular way. And so, yeah, it could just boom, hit us and it's over. Um, Maybe we I'm should not... invest in that. Invest. In, prevent, in the technology requisite to avoid asteroid impacts that otherwise would hit us. Yeah. As long as it doesn't go private, I'm good. Let's do it. Maybe Elon, 
call him up? Uh, I don't know. I heard that he's just a fucking pot smoker. I don't want anything to do with him anymore. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. How could he know anything? Goddamn hippie. I'm burning my tickets to the moon, Elon. Uh, yeah. Um, isn't that what people? What do? are we they, supposed to? Do? I, what? I was just. Gonna, isn't that what people do? You know, they. You know, you're you're you have players on your team that kneel, and then you like burn your season tickets. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, my I all my shoes went in the bonfire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah don't. Sorry, you were saying. What am I supposed to do after this? Fine. All right, a mass extinction occurs. Maybe it was even my fault. Ooh. How does the how does any given lineage attempt to adapt to this or how does the biosphere as a whole like react afterwards? So, a mass extinction well- occurs. And now there's various new open spaces and various new closed doors. It's no longer an opportunity to prey on mosquitoes because there ain't no mosquitoes because they're extinct, whatever. Mm-hmm. Everything has shifted. And now what happens? Well, that might be another episode. But, I mean, as far as I can tell from what people have uh study it i'm guessing that these ecological networks over time get back in tune with each other probably there's evolution of new lineages that have new capacities that then maybe others prey off of as well and you end up building your little motifs and the motifs come together and they create a larger network and that it takes a little while um, at least by like 48 million years ago. So if the ex- mass extinction of the Cretaceous boundary happened at 65 million years ago, it looks like based on these uh, network analyses of food webs in the uh, Eocene, which was, you know, just at 48 million years ago, looks like those networks seem like the kind that we have today, whatever that means, even though it's extinct. Um, what's happening today is going, extinct, you know, um, but something that we're more familiar with. So, but in the prior to that, it looks like there would be, you know, there'd be no analog for that, um, for what we have today in the, in the way that, you know, cause the, so the network analysis thing, I don't want to get into numbers, but there's lots of different measures that people take account of. And then you can take the data from what we understand from the fossil record and you can apply it to those kinds of, um, studies and then compare to you know what we have from the modern world to the the past we don't as far as i know have anything that's happening like within a million years after the mass extinction of the kt event where the asteroid hit we have something at least by 48 million years you know ago which is 18 million years or so after um and it looks like it takes a while to get things back on track and like I was saying, it sounds like things are just a mess. And I was you trying to use some simple examples of like, you know, environmental disruption and disturbance and whatnot. Um, and if you were to remove organisms from the, from the ecosystem, they might have an influence on others indirectly or directly. And that can affect the food webs and, the, and you can have like a, a, an extinction cascade on and on. And then you don't have you know, all these various 
influences acting together. And so the environment just does what it's going to do. And it's, you know, to those organisms prior to the extinction anyway, that environment is extraordinarily poisonous and hazardous and all that. Um, I don't know if that helps answer your question or if you were even asking a question like that at all. It's all connected, right? Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is, right? Like, I don't know. This is... I don't like obvious ideological boxes and stuff, you know, but... And this is one that has become associated with certain human movements or whatever, and that other people would apparently be trying to deny this, right? Everything's connected. Doesn't sound very right-wing to me. But (laughs) it also sounds obviously correct. So, given that, both common sense-wise and quote-unquote scientifically, everything's connected. How could anyone be so stupid as to not think so? I don't know. Uh, I think too it's many just beers has... over here. All right, not being neutral and responsible enough. But how could anyone be so stupid as not to appreciate that everything's connected? Again, I don't. I don't, I don't know. I, my only guess would be that. They've got their blinders on and they don't see. So they just see what they see and everything, if it doesn't fit into their view of the world, then it's uh, worthless and even pondering or whatever. You are just too open and individual for others, I'm guessing. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, you're too open. You're like, Arr! Um, not a but, typical you know, accusation, but I think I think openness is a quality that you possess. You may be skeptical, but that doesn't mean you're not. You know, barriers and corridors. You may be skeptical, but that's allowing other things to breathe, right? Not just you know, you're not just deny, deny, deny. Right. Yes, I do. <laughs> you're full of shit. <laughs> I deny it. Okay. Anyway. All right. Where are we? So everything. Oh, Uh, I think I might have been skipping ahead again or something. Because I was. The question that I was trying to pose was. So we've got this. We have a system made up of many subsystems, all of which interact with each other in such a way as to manifest whatever top level effects there are. Mass extinction sounds like a pretty high-level effect. Yep. And so how would some of the subsystems react to a mass extinction? So when one occurs, you're going to open up a bunch of various affordances because now there's no competition here or whatever. But then there's also some things missing because there's no ungulates to parasite upon or what you know, that it just alters your domain of 
options. And then how does either the system as a whole or how do any of the subsystems deal with that? What are they what happens next after a mass extinction? Well, that's what I thought I just told you. That the world is kind <laughs> of a, a mess and that it takes a while for these the balancing act to occur. Um within all of these networks it takes a while for things to get connected in the way that they were prior to the event itself so that they can you know it looks like they come back to some quote-unquote normal state or whatever that they were in prior and that things are much more like there's a lot of weedy type of organisms that are proliferating quite extensively because you know, they've been given, like you were saying, all this free reign all of a sudden. Um, but they have their own effects. Um, there are, uh, looks like, probably a lot of refugia that occur. Um, because there's something, I guess, one idea is called wanton extinction. And it's just, you know, you know, you, you may, it, like, nobody is immune to what's about to happen or what is happening or whatever. But some just happen to find themselves in a good place like, you know, they always talk about mammals being underground. You know, a lot of, you know, mammals, you know, burrowing and just being in a, you know, environment where maybe they're just, you know, eating some little grubs and stuff that are also doing okay or whatever, and they're able to maintain themselves. So otherwise, if they had been out and about, they probably would have gone extinct too because likely they would be trying to eat something at the surface and there's nothing left, you know, that kind of thing. Um so there's a little bit of that. So there's a little bit of refugia. There's a little bit of, you know, explosions of some organisms. Um, I have a lot to say about this, but I this for another episode, because uh, I have my own ideas, and I don't want to like just willy nilly them out on this one. Heck no. Um, yeah, and keep your willy intact here. That's protect right. Protect it. Save your so, willies. So I mean, there, th that's various. You know, that's some of the various things that, as I understand, the research suggests is going on. Just takes a while. What was the answer to, are we in a mass extinction now caused by human beings? The, the answer is uh, some mass extinction experts scoff. Um but my only concern is regardless of whether or not we're in a mass extinction, can we still be fucking things up royally for, you know, ourselves in particular? And um, one of the things one might want to do is protect these networks to an extent so that things don't get, so you don't like, you know, shoot yourself in the foot, so to speak. Because it's all connected, there are probably networks that we rely upon, some of which we might not even appreciate the degree to which we rely upon them. And so it may behoove us to engage in extensive wildlife management, for example. Like, is that the direction you're going? or I don't, I don't know. I mean, wildlife management, I guess, is always going to have to be part of it because there's so many of us. I mean, how are we going to control what any one of the potentially seven and more billion uh, people do on this planet. There was a recent study or study. It was more like an editorial that came out uh, 
in science and I think the article's called Space for Nature. And they're saying something like by 2050, we should, you know, it'd be ideal to set aside 50% of the earth to the, to nature or whatever you want to, however you want to define nature, but to these, you know, ecological networks where we don't really have a huge direct role in or anything like that. Um, and I think in, a, a big part to me anyway, would be this idea of, you know, you know, ruining things for ourselves uh, because uh, literally like could literally be poisoning ourselves and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. It's all very apocalyptic. I think of like, you know, 1984, you know, like John Hurt walking around in that movie, just looking miserable. <laughs> I just like who wants or uh, Blade Runner, you know, the environment's just crap and everybody's just kind of like duck and cover because the acid rain. And you know what I mean? Like it's do we, you know, do, do we want to mess with these networks that potentially could cause a lot of problems and we may be depending on them, you know, and you know, what if it hurts our, our crops, you know, what if we fuck something up and that actually ruins our crops or whatever. And, and our, 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 you know, cattle or whatever, because we need our steaks. What if not doing that hurts our bottom line? <laughs> and what are we going to do when those come into conflict? When profit and environmental stewardship don't go hand in hand. Well, I guess we can fuck the environment because I need my monies. Of course. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> well, are we... We're growing... Another topic. All right. Well, no, but like we're growing meat in a lab now, right? So we could, you know... If if some weird virus explodes because we decided to kill off half the networks or whatever, and we're like, uh oh, and it kills off all our cattle, and we're like, what am I gonna do about the steak? You know, they can, the lab can be like, have I got a good steak for you? You know, wagyu beef right from the lab. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. I would. I'll taste it. Not opposed. (laughs) I know. I've gotten, I've got no stake in where that came from. Oh, shit! You got no stake in where that came from. That is, that is almost title worthy. Um, yeah. What else is important about mass extinction? Nothing. Nothing. I don't. You know, honestly, we hit the. Uh, like I have, I had my outline and I'm like, we're, we're at it. You know, like it's, it's kind of, this is the sort of the end of it in terms of what I had to write down and say about it. The end um, of the line eage. Oh, you were like, should I just leave you to just say these things while I, uh, you know, drink a beer um the only reason i'm saying these things is because i've been drinking beer oh that's nice i had i just had one i can't run upstairs and whatever it doesn't matter um up ahead of time i know but then it gets warm i don't have a fridge down here whatever this is this is getting embarrassing um so there are some things that i didn't really get to like, you know, what's Darwin's version of extinction? And, uh, 
you know, we didn't get to this uh, Red Queen and some of the, uh, you know, these other things. But um, my hope is that this was enough, you know, for a general listener to kind of get a sense for um, how boring mass extinction can be. <laughs> no, I, I find it fascinating. And I, I uh, you know, I, I wish I had more time to actually, to be, to be honest with you, dive into it. I, I almost like, you know, in my own pursuits, you know, of, you know, trying to figure things out, you know, that I'm working on on my own. Because Harland and I, 2.1 listeners, we also have our own original ideas. That's something that, I mean, I'll put out some of my own eventually here outside of the try and enjoy shit. Um, Harlan's done enemy skepticism. As far as we know, that's his fault. But uh, in my pursuit of those, my own original stuff, um, you know, I, I, I run across these things and I read them and whatnot, but they're not my focus, you know, mass extinction and stuff. So um, same thing with climate, you know, but I, I've learned enough about them that I feel like I could at least put out an outline of something and talk about what, it's sort of important, kind of like under, sort of, I don't know how to describe it, under the covers, <laughs> it's not really the best way to do it, but it's like, it's just under the surface. Um, you know, I was talking about something at one point, and it reminded me, and I don't know what it was, but it reminded me of when I was talking about those um, climate change barcodes and stuff, like people are just like, hey, hey I've got my barcode, and it's like, but you don't know what what's going on. Like you, you just sort of, you just you just let the memes take over, you know, and just let them do what they want. You know, they're just doing what they want with you, and I don't like what's that. What's the memeing of this? Oh fucking Christ! We gotta go. We gotta go, folks. He's he's off the rails. He's off. The rails. Oh god. Oh. Uh, signing off. Uh, this is Ryan. And that I only is... drink the stuff off the rails when I have to pay bar prices at home. I don't have to. Ooh, fucking Jesus Christ! <laughs> Can't leave. Too good, or too bad, or something. Anyway, people, I've been trying to say goodbye, and Harland has been trying to find new puns. Got another one? Goodbye. Goodbye, bitch.